Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes, and today is Friday, December 30th. It is the last Friday night of 2023, and we are starting in the book of Jonah. So tonight is Jonah part one. I don't expect we're going to get really far through the book of Jonah, just like every book when we start it. We do a lot of background and some history on it and kind of set the stage so we all know what we're talking about. But we'll get into the book to some degree. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump in and we'll go from there. Lord, uh, we love you. Uh, Lord, you are awesome and powerful. You are the one with all the strength, all the wisdom and knowledge. God, you are long-suffering, you are patient, and you are kind, and you are gracious. And God, you are our creator and our savior. And Lord, uh, we don't even deserve to have you listen to our prayers, but you do because you love us. And I'm so grateful for that. And Lord, I just want to ask that you would please forgive me of my shortcomings and my faults and my failures. Uh, God, please forgive me of my sin and help me to just be able to have a right relationship with you right now as we get into the Word of God. And Lord, um, just want to ask that you would be with uh, several folks that can't make it tonight. Um, God, we certainly want to pray that you be with Joe and Angela and their whole family as they're going through the loss of a family member. And we just want to pray that you would remind them in some special way that you're with them and you love them and, and you are there to comfort them and to, uh, you know, to hold their hand as they go through this tough time. God, I want to ask that uh, you would help us all to be able to just focus on the word of God tonight and you. I know some of us, like every week, some have a great week, some have a real tough week. Work went well, work went poorly. You know, we're struggling with stuff. We're celebrating things. God, wherever we are, please help us to just focus on the Word of God tonight and you and to start off our weekend with you. Uh, Lord, I ask that you please speak through me. Uh, please give us all soft hearts to hear. And uh, God, help us to learn something more about your Word and help us to be more like you. Help us to be a lot less like us. Uh, that would just be a wonderful way to start the weekend. We love you, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> the book of Jonah. So the book of Jonah, I sent out emails. Uh, if you are not on the email list, let me know. Uh, sometimes one person will be on the email list and the spouse won't, and I've gotten in trouble for that. So just let me know and I will get you on the email list. So <clears throat> I sent out some notes. I sent out some pictures. So that's going to help us a little as we get going. Um, but we're going to start with history and background about the book of Jonah. So you don't have to, you don't have to turn to the book of Jonah just yet. Okay. We're going to get through a lot of other Bible before we get there. Um, there's a good chance we don't even, uh, crack the book of Jonah tonight. That happens once in a while. All right. So the important thing to start with is that the book of Jonah is a historical account. What I mean by that is that the book of Jonah actually happened. Jonah is not fiction. Jonah is not an allegory. It is not a parable. It is history. Now, I bring that up because many people struggle with that idea. Why do you think that is? Because 
Sure. Many people struggle with the idea that Jonah is nonfiction. It's a historical, actual, actual event. It's a literal telling of the life of Jonah. It's not fictitious. A lot of people struggle with that. A lot of people want to write the book off as fictitious. Why? Mom? Because he got swallowed by a big fish, right? We've all read the story. If there's, if you've been in church as a kid, I guarantee the story has been gone over because kids remember it. That's a pretty neat event. And for adults, we don't, some adults struggle with the swallowed by a whale, swallowed by a great fish, and then he lived to tell about it and go on from there. And I'm going to, I'm going to, we're obviously going to talk about that. Before we start reading the text of the book, <clears throat> we are going to go over some of the history and background. As I said, uh, we're going to look at what Israel was going through at the time, who was in charge there. And we need to discuss the powerful Assyrian Empire and their great capital city called what? Nineveh. Okay. Now, if you were with us through our last two Bible studies or our last two books we went over, we talked about Nineveh quite a bit, and uh, we're going to talk about it again as we go through the book of Jonah. Now, let's start by going to Matthew chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 39 to 41, and I really want you guys to with me uh, to these uh, Bible verses as we read through them, and I know that several people have their Bibles on their phones, so you don't really turn there. That's with... That's with, th this is called paper, boys and girls. Have you, I don't know if you've seen this. I don't, I don't think they use it in school anymore. <clears throat> so uh, swipe your screen towards Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 to 41, or turn there if you have a Bible, and follow along with me as I read three verses. We find that the book of Jonah is talked about in several places in the Bible. Not only the book, obviously the book of Jonah is talked about in the New Testament. The book of Jonah was not talked about in the Old Testament, but the prophet Jonah was talked about in several different places in the Bible. So we're going to go over one of those right now, and this is important for tonight's discussion. Uh, and this is Jesus speaking here. But he answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it. What's up, buddy? Good to see you. <clears throat> we got more coming in in a second, at least three more. So um, let me try to get through it. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. I'm just going to try to move the whole thing along. Bear with me. Come on in. Go ahead, girls. Grace is upstairs. There's another little girl up there. Go ahead, buddy. Good to see you. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> All right. For those of you listening at home on the podcast, 
we just had some folks show up. That's what that is. Okay, let's see. All right, let's look at verse 39. So we went over Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 41. And now we need to kind of go over a little bit of this as far as who was Jesus talking to, what was going on here, and what can we learn about it? So in verse 39, the Pharisees just asked Jesus for a sign. And they did that in verse 38. Okay, so preceding verse 39, the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign, and Jesus is angry, and he explains that they are already given a sign in the life of Jonah. He says, there's your sign. You wanted a sign? You got a sign. Read the book of Jonah. That's what he tells them. Why was Jesus angry about them wanting a sign? We're in Matthew 12, Nick. Jesus got angry because the Pharisees just asked for a sign. So the question before us is, why was Jesus angry that they were asking for a sign? There are several right answers. Amber, jump on in. What do you think? Okay, that is one correct answer. Jesus knew that whatever sign he gave them wasn't going to be good enough. How did he know that, Amber? Okay. Wash? Jesus knew that because he just showed him a sign earlier in the chapter. So earlier in the chapter, in verses 10 through 14, Jesus gave them a sign. Now understand, Jesus didn't really give them a sign. That wasn't the reason he did this. Jesus healed the man's hand. There was the man that came. He had the withered hand. I don't know what it looked like. I don't want to like make my hand try to look withered because I feel like I'll be making fun of some oppressed minority group and I'll be in trouble. Okay, but G- there was there was a guy that had a withered hand. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it any more than that. But his hand was infirmed in some way, and Jesus healed it. Now, why? And 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 what was the Pharisees' reaction to that? I mean, you could go ahead and guess if nothing else. He did not do it on a Sunday, Joe, but he did do it on a day of the week that they did not like none too much. Okay, he did it on the Saturday. Day. So they get all mad, okay, that Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. And they totally overlooked the idea that this guy that was physically handicapped is now made whole. You skip over that and they get really mad. <clears throat> so they gathered up some Pharisees, they held a council, and they planned out how they would destroy Jesus. And Jesus knew that. So that's what happened. The, the, so what I'm saying is the last time he gave them a sign. They got mad. They got a group of guys together and sat down and formed a committee. And the committee was the committee to destroy Jesus. That was the name of the committee. So then 20 verses later, they're asking him for a sign. And he's like, really? No, you don't get a sign. Book of Jonah, there's your sign. Okay, now. Jesus gets mad because he knows that when they get a sign, they are not happy with it. The sign is not going to help the Pharisees come around and see Jesus's way of thinking. That's not what it's going to do. Therefore, Jesus tells them that the folks looking for a sign are what? 
evil and adulterous generation is what he says. So if you're looking for a sign, don't say it out loud. Okay. Anyone here ever meet a scoffer or a skeptic of the Bible that said, you know, well, if I got a sign, I would believe. Guess what? No, they wouldn't. <laughs> they would not believe just because they got a sign. Lots of people back then got signs. Didn't change anything. Okay, in verse 40, Jesus does two things. Number one, he states that the life of Jonah was literal, including the event when Jonah was swallowed by the whale. Number two, Jesus makes a futuristic prediction. He says that the Messiah will spend three days in the heart of the earth. Now, let me ask you this. Did the Pharisees know what Jesus meant when he said that? We got all knows. I agree. I don't think they knew. Do we know what Jesus meant? Okay, what did he mean? Okay, so Jesus, after he died on the cross, would be busy for three days, for lack of a better term, and then he would rise again from the dead. So there's going to be a period between this event and when he would rise. So there's two ways of looking at it. Okay, so number one, um, we know that Jesus went down to hell. Now, when I say that, if you've never heard that idea or looked at any of the other verses that go along with that, you're like, well, wait a minute, how did that work? Okay, so we're not going to get off on a rabbit trail, although I'll be happy to discuss it, but it talks about when Jesus went to set the captives free. So after the thief on the cross who died, he explained to him, tonight you will be with me in paradise. Okay, in Luke, I think it's chapter 12. There is a place called Abraham's bosom where you find out that the righteous would go prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That place was a cross from the place of torment in hell. There was a great chasm that was fixed. There was one place that was filled with fire and torment. There was another place that was where all the good people were. Lazarus and the rich man were separated. If, if none of this is sounding familiar, just ignore it all. And we can talk another time, but we're not, we're not going to have time to get into it now. So, yes, during the three days, okay, that's why I say Jesus was busy. Okay, he, he wasn't just, you know. I, I absolutely do. But the, the important thing is there is going to be a, I don't think he was explaining where he was going and what he was doing so much as the idea that there is going to be an event, a time period, and then another event, and they are going to be surrounded in miracles, and it's going to happen to the Messiah. And Jesus explains that if you don't, understand the book of Jonah and believe the book of Jonah, guess what? You're not going to believe what's going to, what's about to happen. He said something's, something's coming and it's going to be supernatural. It's going to be miraculous. It's not going to be something we can explain. So if you don't believe this book, if you don't believe this prophet, 
you're not going to believe what's about to happen. You're going to see miracles that nobody in the world will believe in a couple thousand years. So let's talk about that for a second, because we're, we're centered on one miracle, right? A guy who dies and comes back to the life in three days. Well, that's great, but that wasn't all the miracles that happened. What other miracles happened? Mac? The saints came back from the dead. The sun was darkened. The veil of the temple was ripped. The rocks were rent. There was a great earthquake. There were such powerful miracles at the death of Jesus that the entire world heard about it. One of those miracles being many saints bursting forth from the grave, I believe is the term that the Bible uses, walking into Jerusalem and people seeing them. That's what the Bible says in Matthew. The miracles were so great that they went around the world. And we wonder why Paul in his ministry in the book of Acts was able to go to these cities and show up and say, I was there when these things happened. You heard about these stories? I was there. They happened. Jesus is God. How many people got saved and joined the church immediately following the death, belly, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in Jerusalem and then in Antioch. What were the numbers they talked about? In one day, thousands. 3,000 were, were, were added to the church. 5,000. Thousands and thousands of people. Why was it? Because these miracles happened. But guess what? Did it say that all of Jerusalem got saved and joined the church? No. Why not? Because those same people, those same scoffers and skeptics that didn't believe in the prophet Jonah and the miracles then, it didn't matter what miracle happened. They weren't going to believe. Can you imagine people's hearts being that hard to see all of that and to write it off somehow? Eh, coincidence. Yeah. People still do it today. Two generations after they crossed through the Red Sea. Yep. They were unbelievers. They were, yep. Two generations. Yep. It's crazy. Do you guys remember, you, you, you understand the great-grandfather analogy, right? Okay, so, so Louis is great-granddad. And he was in Jerusalem, and he felt the earthquake, and he saw the sun darken, and he saw the rocks rent, and he saw the dead raise out of their graves. And then Louis tells MacArthur, his son, who is, we're going to call him my grandfather, and he was a little kid, and he remembers the commotion. He remembers all that stuff, and he remembers some of it, and people were scared to death. It was impactful in his life. Okay, but he wasn't quite, you know, old enough. And then he has a son, Nick, my dad. And Nick 
was not alive at that time. He heard about it, but he wasn't there. And he got these stories from his dad, MacArthur, but his dad was, you know, kind of young. Okay. But he swears up and down and, and Nick heard from a few of his friends. Oh yeah. I remember that time. You know, you were only eight, but I was 12. And man, I remember that. And then Nick has a son and that's me. And now guess what? Nobody's alive anymore that saw it. And all I hear is, is a secondhand account from my dad, Nick, who heard it from his dad, my crazy grandpa MacArthur. And all of a sudden, the story he tells, the tale, it's a myth. That's how fast it happens. That is why God set up patterns in your life that you are supposed to take special times. You're supposed to have one every week. You're supposed to have several every year. You're supposed to take these times and you're supposed to make them special and you're supposed to teach your kids parts of the Bible so that they never forget. Today, it's 2023, two, it's about to be 2023. Okay, two more days. It's the end of 2022. And I am still teaching my children that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the God of miracles who brought the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt by a mighty hand. We are still supposed to be teaching those same stories to our children. So no one ever forgets. So with Jonah, with the Lord, Jesus is saying, that if you don't believe the book of Jonah to be literal, you're not going to believe what you're going to see with your own eyes. Now, in verse 41, Jesus says something remarkable, and we could kind of spend all day unpacking this, but I want to get back to my notes and move forward a little bit. So we're going to jump in here. He says in verse 41 that the men who lived in Nineveh at the time of Jonah will judge the generation that Jesus is currently speaking to. So Jesus says, you guys will be judged by the men in Nineveh in the days of Jonah, and what will they do to you? How will they, how will they find you? He says, they will condemn you. Because they heard and believed. And you guys are going to see it. And you're not even going to believe. The wicked men of Nineveh are going to condemn the generation of the Jews that Jesus was speaking to right then. And he says, they are going to condemn you. What Jesus was saying here was equivalent to David slaying Goliath. The Pharisees thought they had a giant on their side. Well, we're the children of Abraham. You don't know who you're talking to. We are God's chosen people. They thought they had every they thought they had the trump card that was going to win the game and no one could touch them. 
And what happens? A scrawny teenager with a little rock killed the giant. And then the entire Philistine army wet themselves and runs away. Because the Jews thought that they had it all together. And Jesus says, you guys are so far from it, you have no idea. The most wicked people from the most wicked nation in the capital city were more spiritual and righteous than you. Because they heard about it and they repented like that. And you guys have seen all this, all of these miracles. You guys have seen the Messiah firsthand. You're about to see me die and come back from the dead three days later, and you guys are not going to repent and get right with God. What Jesus was saying to the Pharisees was a crushing blow to their ego. The idea that these Gentiles, the Assyrians that lived in the capital city of Nineveh, were going to judge us? So the most important point to notice in this little portion of scripture is that Jesus did not consider the life of Jonah to be an analogy or fictitious. Jesus believed the book of Jonah to be literal, true, and an accurate historical telling of the life of Jonah. That's the way Jesus describes it when he describes it in the New Testament. He does it in Matthew. He does it in Luke. Jesus calls Jonah a prophet in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, you guys can look it up on your own. Jesus calls Jonah a prophet. Jesus confirms the miracle of Jonah's recovery from the fish in Matthew 12, verse 40. Jesus based his call to repentance in his day on the validity of Jonah's message of repentance. And he does that in Matthew and in Luke chapter 11. In other words, if you don't believe in the story of Jonah, then you won't believe it when I raise from the dead either. Now, this is something that's neat. You can notice this when you're reading your Bible in the morning, having your coffee. Every single time Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, he does so in a literal sense. Did you know that? Not one time in the entire Bible does Jesus quote from the Old Testament and consider it a story, a parable, an analogy. He always quotes from it and tells it as if it is literal, as if it is historically accurate. It is true. So many Christians write off parts of the Bible, basically any part of the Bible that you're uncomfortable with, that you don't want to have to deal with, you don't want to have to believe. Guess what you can do? Ah, it didn't really happen like that. There you go. You're free. You're absolved. You don't have to obey the word of God right there. Free and clear, right? But no matter how much someone today might write off a portion of the Bible as analogous, Jesus never did that. All right, so let's get into Jonah. <coughs> Not the book. We're not, we're not there yet. Let's just talk a little bit about Jonah. So Jonah is a prophet in the region of Gath Hefer, which is near Nazareth. Jesus, or sorry, not Jesus. Jonah was a contemporary of what prophets? These questions are both worth three gold stars. He was contemporary of the prophet who? No. 
Washington. It's okay. No. No on Obadiah. No on Micah. One more strike, and we're going to the other team. Carlos. He's he's having second guesses. What? Did you just make up a prophet's name? Say it again. Okay. (laughs) No on Ezekiel. Okay, so he was a contemporary of Amos and Hosea. Amos and Hosea, we have not gone over, over either of those books, were both prophets to the northern kingdom, which we call Israel. Remember, after King Solomon died, the nation of Israel split. So we have, let's see where, there it is. So the northern and southern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom they called uh, Judah and the northern kingdom they called Israel. And the uh, split took place right after King David and King Solomon, King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ended up being the king of Judah. And they had this other guy who was an outlier um, from, uh, he was down in Egypt at the time. Uh, Jeroboam came up to be the king of the northern kingdom. Uh, They had separate kings. They had separate capitals. What was the capital of the northern kingdom? For a much lower bonus, what was the capital of the southern kingdom? Jerusalem, very good. What was the capital of the northern kingdom? No, but that's, yes, Hebron is actually south of Jerusalem. Hebron was the capital of Idumea, so I'm going to give you partial credit for that because it was a capital of a city after the Babylonians took away uh, the Jews from Jerusalem in that we read about. So th- that was good. I'm going to, I'm, I'm very impressed. It was Samaria. So the Northern kingdom, the capital was Samaria. Uh, so where are we? Um, okay. At the time of Jonah, the King of the Northern kingdom was Jeroboam the second. So there were two King Jeroboams in the Northern kingdom. The second one was reigning when Jonah uh, was a prophet. And w- we can actually read about, uh, Jonah in Second Kings chapter 14. He's mentioned there. I'm not sure if we're going to get there, um, but just so you know, you can read about him in other places in the Old Testament other than the book of Jonah. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, the book of Jonah is one of only three books written to the Gentiles. Can anyone else give me the other two? Two other books written to the Gentiles. Yes, Nick, Obadiah, which is good because two weeks ago we finished that book, so I'm glad someone remembered. And, nope, not Micah, not Acts. What's that? Yes, Nahum. Good. So Nahum and Jonah were not only both books written to the Gentiles, they were both books written to the city of Nineveh. Okay, Jonah first, Nahum second. Jonah is the prophet who preaches to them and they repent and they get right with God. Nahum is the prophet that comes back about a century later after they turn back to idolatry and wickedness. And Nahum says, you toast. And that's it. 
All right. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, Jonah is one of four Old Testament prophets whose ministries were specifically referred to by Christ. Anyone want to guess who the other three are? Hmm. Who did Jesus talk about as a prophet? Now, this is kind of, it could be, yes, Elijah's one of them. And that answer could be, could be, misleading because you're thinking of prophets that have a book, but I didn't say that. So Elijah was one. Very good. Not Moses. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, Jesus quoted Moses, but nope. Uh, Paul came after Jesus. So we're going to take away points for that guest MacArthur, but <laughs> yeah, 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 he was, he was somewhere in the vicinity. Yes. He was alive at the time of Jesus. That's very good. Okay. So you said Elijah or Elisha? Elijah. Elisha. Very good, Nick. That's two. And the third prophet had a book. No, it was Isaiah. So uh, one of four prophets where uh, Jesus specifically references their ministry. Okay. Uh, Jonah was also the only Old Testament prophet who attempted to run from God, which is interesting because typically a prophet's job is to give a message from God to a person or nation who is running from God. But in this case, Jonah himself tried to run from God almost comically. And we're going to get into that. So uh, something to notice when you're reading through the book of Jonah, he refers to himself in the third person uh, throughout the book. That does not mean that someone else wrote the book Many prophets have done that. Moses did that. Uh, Daniel did that. Isaiah did that. So don't take that as, um, you know, evidence that someone else wrote the book of, of Jonah. And let's see. Okay, so the name Jonah, what does that mean? It does mean dove. Very good. So dove, you got it. Just like, yep, dove descended, dove, Noah gave the, you know. You got it. Yeah, we see doves. Yep, nothing nothing more than that. Okay, uh, what significance does a dove have in the Bible? Okay, there we go. So what you guys were saying as far as peace, there, I don't have anything, there's nothing wrong with that. But what we often forget about is that the dove is a sacrifice. And what type of sacrifice is it? You guys all said it. It's a peace offering. Okay, so the dove is a peace offering. Uh, the dove did. So um, Noah sent out a raven, um, which did not return. And then he sent out a dove. And the dove came back after so many days. I don't remember how many. Probably not three. That'd be too easy. Um, but he came back after a certain period of time and he had the branch in his mouth. So he knew that it was time to get off the boat. <clears throat> um, so a dove is used as a sign several times when Jesus gets baptized. We see the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. OK, there was not a bird flying down to G like a dove. OK, just. Yeah. So just you see paintings all the time. and It's like there was no bird. It said like a dove, okay? However you want to take that, that's fine. But it was not a white bird. It was like a dove. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jonah was the son of Amittai. 
Anyone know what amitai means? Huh? Yeah. Mr. Smart guy in the back that knows what dove means. Anyone? Uh-huh. <clears throat> so, yeah, so amitai means my true one. That means that Jonah was the dove from my true one. So you can play with that and see what you can get out of it. All right. Uh, let's look at a couple other uh, portions here of Scripture before we get into the text. Uh, the idea of the third day is special in the Bible. We see this many, many times. Has anyone here noticed that numbers seem to show up regularly? Okay, and they, you know, there are certain numbers that are special, and they, okay, so. The, th uh, the third day is special in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we find out that uh, the new life was introduced on the third day. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham's offering of Isaac, it took three days to accomplish the task prior to the angel stopping uh, um, uh, Abram uh, with the knife. Uh, and then the most uh, famous one is going to be Jonah. Three days in the great fish, and that's in Jonah chapter one that we're going to get into that. All right, so <clears throat> jump on in, jump on in. You got a question or something you want to contribute? Well, verse 41. Yes. Uh, don't feel yes. So, what he's talking about is <clears throat> you're going to have. When we say Judgment Day, there are two uh, judgments talked about in the Bible. Can anyone give me the name of one of them? Okay, the Great White Throne, and then the other one, you got it, the Bema Seat, also called uh, the Judgment Seat of Christ. Now, the reason the Judgment Seat of Christ is referred to as the Bema Seat is because that goes back to the Olympics. So the Bema Seat was where you would go at the end of the games to receive your rewards. So you ran this race, you won this prize, here's the prize, okay? So there's coming a day when all believers, when we die, we will stand before the Judgment Seat of Christ and we will pass through the fire but the fire is there just to try our works. It's not a judgment as far as good or bad, right or wrong. You made it in or you didn't. Everyone, you got it. That's exactly what it is. You competed. Here's your score. Here's your prize. Some get a big prize because they took Christianity seriously. Some, well, guess what? Welcome to the team. You, you can sit on the bench all the way over there on the end. You don't get anything, okay? But that is the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, so what they what the Lord is talking about is the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is in the end when hell is emptied out and all the people that have been in hell, <clears throat> non-believers, stand before the great white throne. The Bible talks about how we will witness that. So we will see it. The, it is the only time the Bible talks about tears in heaven because other than that the bible says that literally there will be no crying all tears will be wiped away right this is the last time that christians will weep because we will be there everyone that shows up at the great white throne keep in mind we're not going to stand before the throne we are going to be 
and it doesn't say this, but the way that the Bible reads is we will be somewhat in the bleachers kind of, you know, watching the event. And everyone that stands at the great white throne is guilty. They did not rely on the Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross for salvation. They were relying on whatever, something else. And they are going to be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. So they go from hell, they stand before the great white throne, then they're cast into the lake of fire forever. During that time, okay, the saved, why are we crying? Because we will see people we love who are there. And what will be our thought? Why are we crying? Number one, we know their fate. And number two, maybe what could I have done better? Right? Okay, so that is the last time um, we will cry. And the Bible says someone will wipe away our tears. Who will wipe away our tears? Jesus will. Okay? You got it. So what Jesus is saying is on this day, the men of Nineveh will be in the stands. And they will rise up and condemn you, the Pharisees. Because they, the most wicked people in the history of the world, heard the message of God and repented. They got in line, they turned their life around, and they followed Christ. And you, the Pharisee, did not. So that is what Jesus is referring to. They are going to stand up and condemn this generation. You guys had the Messiah standing here in front of you, and you didn't get saved. Carlos, what you got? Yeah. Nope. Yeah, at that point, it's over. The books have been closed. Yep. It's already too late. That's the problem. There, there was a great book that <clears throat> that I read, and it it was something along the lines. It was called something like uh, the one thing you can't do in heaven. And the, the whole book was about giving the gospel, sharing the gospel, bringing the gospel to the world and to other people. And that was the author's point is like, you can't do it in heaven. You don't hand out gospel tracts. You don't talk about Jesus. You don't invite people to church. You don't, you know, you don't tell people about heaven and hell and their need for Jesus. You don't do any of that. That's over. It's the one thing we don't do. You know, you, we, and the point they were trying to make was we have, Okay, we've all been to a cemetery, right? I mean, we've all been to a funeral. Every single tombstone you go to, there's two dates and a little dash. And the point is, all you get is that dash. And that's it. Once that's over, you're forever in one place or another. And for the saved, hip hooray, we're in heaven. Okay, I'm glad I'm going. But the point is, you... That's it. You only get the dash. You can't serve the Lord anymore. That's why this church supports missionaries. That's why this church prints up and gives out to anyone that wants gospel tracts that they can hand out to people. That's why, you know, we teach people how to lead someone to the Lord. Because hell is real, fire is hot, and it's forever. So if we're not doing it, you know, now there's there's no there's no point later on. 
If you want to exercise, do it now. You don't need to do it in heaven. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Okay. I hope I'm not, but you see what, what I'm that that's my point. Like they're, you know, you, you can only do s- certain things now. So, so that, that's the idea. Okay. Um, good question. Joe, did that help explain verse 41? Okay. Okay. Uh, let's keep going here. All right. So here we go. When we step back and look at the whole Bible, we see some really interesting ideas here with the book of Jonah. When you read through the book of Jonah, what is never brought up or mentioned? I know it's a tough question. You're like, well, I don't know, lots of things. Is there a camel in there? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How about this? What is brought up in every book of a prophet in the rest of the Bible? What's the main subject of every other prophetic book in the Bible? It is. That's the message. Israel. Israel is not mentioned one time in the entire book of Jonah. That was so odd that the book of Jonah, it was debated by the rabbis whether it should be in the Bible. Because Israel is not mentioned. Every one of the prophets, even the prophets to the Gentiles, are because of what they did to Israel. Israel's not mentioned anywhere in the book of Jonah. Jonah was Jewish. He lived in Israel. He was a prophet of the Most High God, but Israel is not mentioned. Now, when you look at the entire book of Jonah, you find that it was used as a condemnation of the nation of Israel in the days of Christ. How is the whole book of Jonah used as a condemnation of Israel? The whole book of Israel is used as a condom, or sorry, sorry. The whole book of Jonah is used as a condemnation of the entire nation of Israel. How is that done? Who doesn't believe in Jesus? You got it. The Jews did not believe in Jesus in the days of Christ and Matthew. Okay, but let's take that further, Nick. So Jesus was a prophet, yes or no? Now, he was also God. I'm not trying to take something away, but I'm saying, was he a prophet? Yes. He explained what was coming. He, okay, yes, he was the Messiah. I'm not trying to say that he wasn't. Yeah, no, 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 no. But understand, he, he was a prophet. Did they listen to Jesus? Okay, so who was a prophet before Jesus? All of them, right? Okay, good. Yeah, all of them. Did they listen to any of them? No. What did they typically do to prophets in the Old Testament, Washington? They killed them. That's what they did. And if they didn't kill them, they were begging the authorities to kill them. 
Jeremiah's own family wanted him dead. The government wanted him dead. The same with Isaiah. They did kill him. The same with Nathan the prophet. Go down the list. What did they do to prophets? Prophets showed up to Israel. They said, we got a message from God. And did Israel turn around and do what the prophet said? No. They killed them. And what happened when Jonah walks into Nineveh? How many words did Jonah speak? Five words to the nation of Assyria, to the capital city of Nineveh, the most wicked people on earth. He walks into the city. He was so scared of this city that he thought it would be safer to run from God and get on a boat and sail to the end of the world, it would be safer than for me to walk into that city because I know what the Assyrians do to every group of people that they don't like. And any story I give as an example will be the most horrific thing you have ever heard in your entire life. And they heard five words from the prophet of God. And what did the farm animals do? They repented in sackcloth and ashes from the king down to the animals. They repented. And God spared the most wicked city in the history of the world. And when I go to heaven, I will get to meet the, the entire city of Nineveh. That is why the book of Jonah as a whole is used as a condemnation against the entire nation of Israel. Jesus said, you guys had prophet after prophet after prophet, and you ignored them all. No matter how many times God came by and tapped you on the shoulder and told you what you were doing wrong, God put pressure and more pressure and more pressure, and you ignored it all. And the men of Nineveh heard five words from God, and they repented. We're going to get there, Joe. That's called the teaser, Joe. I'm not going to tell you the five words. You got to come back for part two. It'll probably be part eight by the time we get there. Okay, let's see if we can get a little bit more in. I don't know about you, but that idea gives me goosebumps. That is insane. I just love that. I mean, I just love that idea. Okay, Israel constantly boasted of being God's chosen people, and they constantly ignored God's prophets. All right, so we're going to get through, we're going to get right up to the first verse of Jonah. We're going to do it here. Uh, <laughs> you know what, though? I mean, I know that every time I tell you, okay, we're going to start this book on this day. And my hope is that you guys like read ahead and get into the book. And I know that it's got to be somewhat disappointing that we don't actually start the book until the second week. But isn't it worth it to understand the picture, you know, like, yeah. The, okay. Do you know, do you know why the Bible was so discouraging when I first got handed my first Bible was because I had no idea what any of the books were about. 
I didn't know who they were about. I didn't know who they were written to. I, I didn't understand any of it. And I was like, all right. And I just read through it. And man, I mean, all of it just right over my head. And I'm like, oh, look, Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt not steal. I think I got that one. I think I understand that. But so much of it was like I had no context. I didn't understand it. So that's why when we teach a book of the Bible, we give context. We go over the history. We go over, you know, the events leading up to it. So it hopefully adds some color and depth and, and it makes sense. If, if nothing else, it gives me a chance to stand up here and throw a fit like a child about verses in the Bible that I enjoy. All right. One of the main lessons of the book of Jonah is demonstrating the long-suffering, the patience, and the compassion of God. A couple weeks ago, we were in the book of Obadiah, and we were in that book for three parts. I know that because I just posted all three parts on my podcast today. So if anyone has not heard the teaching on the book of Obadiah, go to the Bible Thumper podcast, and you can listen to all three parts. And in the book of Obadiah, one of the things that we learned about was the long suffering of God. The book of Obadiah was a condemnation about the Edomites. And they were evil and wicked. They were enemies of Israel for so long. And God waited so long before he punished them. And it's important for us to understand the long suffering of God because God does not want to punish the wicked. God wants, what does God want from the wicked? What does he want? Yeah, that's what he wants. He wants them to turn and to follow him. He doesn't want them to keep being wicked. He doesn't want to penalize them. He wants them to get right and be obedient to him. Okay. We read about this in these two verses, Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33. Now, if you were going to share the gospel with people, these are verses you need to have, you know, highlighted or marked or somehow uh, noted in your Bible because they're very powerful for making a very good point. In Ezekiel 18, verse 23, we read, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Question mark. Sayeth the Lord God and not that he should return from his ways and live question mark. The answer to these questions is no. God has no pleasure at all in the wicked dying. And notice he uses the phrase at all. God takes no pleasure whatsoever when a wicked person dies. God does not want a single wicked person in hell. He doesn't want a single wicked person going to their grave without him. Go on to Ezekiel 33, 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? God, in that verse, repeats himself, turn ye. Do you realize that that implies that God is begging? He is begging the disobedient sinner to get right with him. He wants them to live. With Nineveh, 
people unfortunately see the destruction of a city, the destruction of a group of people, and all they can think of is how dare God do that? But what did we talk about when we talk about the love of God being one stake on a teepee? What does that stake require? That love requires something else to hold it up in place. That is justice. There is no love without justice. We cannot say that allowing the criminal to go free who was wicked, who hurt someone, to let them go free and say, no justice for the victims. Everyone goes free. Is that love? Does anyone want that? No, that is injustice. The difference is with God, there is long suffering. God does not come down with a hammer on the wicked immediately. He doesn't do it after years. God does it after generations. When God wipes out an empire, and let me tell you, the Assyrian Empire needed to be wiped out. God didn't do it for generations. God didn't do it until he sent prophets to warn them so that they could get right. God is long-suffering, even with the wicked of Nineveh. How much more is he long-suffering with the wicked in this room? And I mean saved people that love Jesus and received him as their Savior. They love the Bible. They love God. But remember, what does the Bible say about my righteousness? It's like filthy rags. What does the Bible say about my heart? Okay, it's evil and desperately wicked. It cannot be trusted. Paul says there are none righteous. There are none that are good. No, not one. How patient and long-suffering is God with me and my sin and my failures. This book is about God's grace and his mercy and his patience. And then who else is God long-suffering and compassionate towards? Not just the Ninevites. But Jonah, who read through the book of Jonah, and at the end, you just love Jonah. You're like, man, if I ever have a son, naming him Jonah. Have you ever met a boy named Jonah? I never have. Who would name their son Jonah? Just name him. Jonah's a horrible character in the Bible. Even when he finally has God grab him by the hair, and I'm talking in the checkout line of Walmart, 
on the floor, throwing and kicking and screaming a fit and dragged out the store and thrown into the car seat. Even when God does that with Jonah and Jonah finally does what God says, what does he do? Yeah, he complains. He complains and he looks forward to the destruction of this people that he doesn't like and thinks he's better than every attribute of Jonah in this book is horrible. If you want to learn how to be a great Christian, just do the opposite of Jonah and you will be an amazing human being. He is a train wreck. But the book shows us God's compassion with Jonah. Okay. Since we started five minutes late, I have two minutes left. Okay, the the historical setting. Uh, Wash, go to the map of Assyria. If you are watching at home on a video, we now have the ability to put slides in, so there'll be a map. I emailed everyone a slide of the nation of Assyria, so you should have that map. Um, that map is before the Babylonian empire. Uh, if you want to look over here, I'll give you a quick drawing, you know, it was something like that. The nation of Assyria. Okay. Some places draw it a little more like that, but that was basically the Assyrian empire. It went into Egypt. It had all of Israel all the way down to um, Babylon. Nineveh was up here, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, parts of Turkey. Uh, It was a world empire at the time, the nation of Assyria. And um, Babylonia, if you look in the lower right corner, was a province in the southeast portion of the Assyrian empire. And in time, Uh, you have uh, the region of Babylonia, and in it is the capital city of that region, Babylon. And that region was uh, inhabited by a group called the Chaldeans. And over time, they rise to power and they ultimately take over the Assyrian Empire, which happens later. But that's the nation of Assyria. Uh, You can uh, get back to me there, Wash, on on the screen. Uh, during the height of the empire, the Assyrians secured tribute from King Jehu of the northern kingdom of Israel. That was between 45 to 75 years prior to Jeroboam II and the time of Jonah. So the Assyrian empire was basically taxing the nation of Israel. Then what happened after that was the Assyrian empire actually shrank quite a bit because of internal struggles that they were having. And during that time, Jeroboam II enlarged the borders of the nation of Israel, and he enlarged the borders to the largest that the nation of Israel had been all the way back to the time of King David and uh, King Solomon. And then uh, we get to uh, the point where uh, the Assyrian Empire Uh, then was about to start growing and becoming larger and stronger again. And then ultimately, the Assyrian Empire take away the northern kingdom. They surround Samaria. They, uh, you know, uh, break down the walls. They lay siege. They take away the Jews from the northern empire, and they uh, keep uh, keep them captive. 
And we're not going to get too into that. That happens a little bit in the future uh, from the time period that we're talking about uh, with Jonah. So with that, we are at an hour. So I think this is a perfect time to stop. Uh, The next thing we're going to get into starting next week is Jonah chapter one, verse one. So uh, the entire book of Jonah, I believe, uh, is only 48 verses spread out over four chapters. So anyone can read it in, I mean, tomorrow you'll have it read before you're done with your first cup of coffee. So be sure to read it, jot down any questions you got, any good points of discussion, and we're going to get into uh, Jonah chapter one, verse one next Friday. Uh, We'll be back at the Heart of Junction. Other than that, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Rick, would you be so kind as to pray for us?